0: today we are talking about a mother, Naomi, in the book of Ruth chapters 1 and 2. Neil did a fabulous job for us last week laying out the context of where we are and where we find ourselves in the book of Ruth. That this book happened during the time of the judges. And what we know from the judges is that it was a time of, of social and moral anarchy. People did what was right in their own Eyes. In fact, when you read the last few chapters of the book of Judges, it really does just just make you ache with some of the wickedness and the brokenness that was happening within the time period here. And I think this is important for our own context because we also sometimes feel like we live in, in a time of social and moral anarchy. We see the evil around us, and I would dare say that if we knew half of the evil, that took place within our own community, it make us want to like run to the mountains and live as hermits or behind a convent wall, just trying to escape it all. And I think it does pose this age-old question: Is that when evil happens, is there any meaning? Is there any purpose behind the hardship? Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose behind the suffering, the trial, the evil? That has happened, and this is an important question because many of you are feeling the effects of evil. Many of you have gone through, or are currently going through, or soon will go through trials in this life. Many of you have experienced the deep grief and suffering of losing someone close to you. Is there meaning behind the loss? Is there meaning behind the suffering? The book of Ruth really does point us to the meaning behind all things that that we don't go through trials for no purpose, but there is reason reason and there is purpose. For today's sermon, uh, we are going to be in Ruth chapter 2, but we're also going to go back some into chapter 1. I just felt like that was too much for Cameron to read today, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, so we will depend on your knowledge of, of, of last week's sermon text as well. And today what we want to talk about and what we want to discuss is the comfort of providence. The comfort of providence. And you might say, well, that's great, Stephen, but, but what is providence? Providence is one of those words that is not found in the Bible like the word trinity It's nowhere found in scripture. However, uh, theologians and Christians over the centuries have developed these words to help us to understand what we see about God in the scriptures. So what is providence? The best definition, hands down, of providence is actually found in a catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is the question that the catechism asks. What do you understand by the providence of God? How do we define the providence of God? And the catechism then, as catechisms do, it gives us the answer. It says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, so that government that so that governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Notice that last line. Nothing happens in this world by chance. Nothing happens in this world by fate. But all things, all things are governed by God's fatherly hand. Do you have an upcoming move due to a PCS or ETS? Guys, that's not an accident. Where you're going is not an accident. But it is governed by God's sovereign hand. Did you just get a diagnosis that has rocked your world or, or, get, or get just bone-crushing news from somebody? What is going on in your life is not an accident because our God governs and he rules and he controls all things. Our God controls all things. I think when we say all things, we have to say, when we say all things, what do we mean? Well, whenever we say all things, we mean all things in nature. So if it is a sickness that you're experiencing, if it is, is it a natural disaster that you're experiencing, God is control all of nature book of hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of god and the exact imprint of his nature he jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications from sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high what is that saying It's saying that jesus governs all things Nothing happens in this world without his say so. That's true in nature. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus is saying, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? God is in control of all things. This definition that's on the screen talks about every blade of grass and every leaf on the tree. If we get a big rain or if we go through drought, God is there. This is true of nature, but it's also true of the actions of people. And this is where it gets a lot harder for us, that God governs the actions of people. But we see this explained in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9 where he says, the heart of man plans his way. You might make a choice, you might plan your way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. As we look to the book of Ruth, and when we look at the life of Naomi, what we see is God's providence at work. The famine that came to the land of Judah was no accident. The fact that there was no bread in Bethlehem, the house of bread, was, was not chance, was not fate, but was by the hand of the Lord. Whenever Elimelech and Naomi with their children moved to Moab, and this is hard, this is where I might lose some of you, but when they moved to Moab and Elimelech passed away, that was not outside of God's control. That was not outside of God's command. Ten years of childlessness from Naomi's sons and Moab with their daughters-in-laws was not out of chance, but was was under the control and governed by God. The death of Naomi's two sons was not out of the governing control of God. And I know we have people who've lost children here before. And my hope is that this would not drive resentment against God, but rather drive you into a deeper hope towards God. Because what's the option? Either God is in control and governs all things, Or things are meaningless. Which option do you want? I take great comfort that whenever tragedy has struck our family and we've had death of children or we've had strokes happen that I can look at those events and take comfort Knowing that God is governing them and that God is bringing about goodness from those things. I think one of the the things that people go to whenever we talk about the providence of God and God governing all things is oftentimes people say, Well, doesn't that make God culpable or guilty of sin? Doesn't that make God responsible? And shouldn't we be able to then shake our fist at God? Isn't this what Naomi did? Isn't this what she said? The Lord has turned against me. I came out full and he brought me out empty. There's like accusations against God. But once again, we have to go to what we know is true. We have to go to Scripture. And what does Scripture say about this? Is God guilty? Is God culpable? Well, what we do know from Scripture is that God does not sin. In fact, the gospel, or the, 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 the apostle John, 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I think in our finite minds, we can't fully comprehend how God is in control and governs all things. <laughs> But we, at the same time, we have the freedom of choice, and we make decisions. When we sin, yes, it is our own sin. But God is at work through that, bringing about something beautiful. And you say, Stephen, this, this is horribly confusing. It's confusing to my own mind. And all I have to go to is the truth that I find in Scripture. And I think wherever we try to explain this or illustrate this, there's no better person to go to than the person of Joseph. Do y'all remember the story of Joseph, one of 12 sons of Jacob of Israel? He was the favorite son. The father doted on him, spoiled him so much so that all of his brothers hated and despised him, hated and despised him so much that the book of Genesis tells us that they plotted to kill him. They threw him in a pit so he would die in the pit. Then they said, you know what? Here comes a caravan. Let's sell him as a slave so we're not guilty of murder, guilty of enslaving, but not murder. Which, let's be honest, is is oftentimes one and the same thing. So Joseph was then sold into slavery. And as a slave, he was then falsely accused and thrown into prison. When he was thrown into prison, he was then there forgotten by people that he helped. Who had the ability to bring about him freedom. Lord, when we read the Bible, what we find is, is is a brief outline of his life. But let's not forget the things that could have happened to him as he was in the vulnerable position of being a slave and being a prisoner. Life was not easy for him. But the book of Genesis then tells us what happens with Joseph. That he is able to rise up from his station as a prisoner to be second in command of all of Egypt. And not only is he in second command of all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself, but through his administration, he rescues not only Egypt, but the world around them from a great famine. And as the story of Joseph unfolds, we're reminded that Joseph's family, his brothers who were without food due to this famine, had to travel to Egypt to get food And they lined up in front of Joseph, bowing down to him. Not recognizing that this was the brother that they tried to kill, that they sold into slavery. After it was revealed that this is Joseph, their brother. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, has this verse. The brothers were nervous that Joseph... Might try to take revenge on them, might try to kill them, but this is what Joseph said As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see that? Your actions were your actions, and your actions were evil, and what you did to me was evil. It was wrong. But God, in the midst of that evil, was redeeming the evil and making something beautiful happen out of it. Guys, we know there's a difference between suffering from nature and suffering at the sinfulness of another human being. But God is saying whether it is nature or whether it's the evil from another human being, God is at work bringing something beautiful from the brokenness. All you might see is the shattered glass of life. But God is picking up the pieces to produce a mosaic that will bring peace and comfort and joy in the kingdom to come. This is the promise of God's providence. Naomi was not wrong in her declaration She was not wrong in her acknowledgement that God was in control of all that happened to her. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 13 she said the Lord's hand has turned against me. In chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 she said the Lord has brought me back empty. Like the book of Job where Job declares the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. She was not wrong in her acknowledgement of God's involvement. But you know where she messed up? You know where she got it wrong. She got it wrong in that she did not see God's fatherly hand. Look at this definition all things, that second to last line, all things come not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Guys, that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. A father's hand is loving. A father's hand should be kind. A father's hand should, should work for the good of the child. Your pain and your loss has meaning. Naomi's pain and her loss has purpose. There's, there's a great sermon by John Piper where he is talking about the sovereignty and the purpose of God. And it's based off of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. This is what the apostle wrote. I'll read the verses, and then I want to read John Piper's quote. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of eternal glory. So we do not focus what is seen. We don't focus on on the loss, the pain, the grief, but rather we focus on on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this this is what Pastor John wrote. He said... This is what I mean by saying that every moment of your affliction is meaningful. It has meaning. It is doing something, causing something, bringing about something glorious. And you can't see it. The world can't see it. They think that you are tempted to think that this suffering is meaningless. But it's not. It's it's doing something good. Paul, the apostle Paul, he continues, responds, look to the things that are unseen. The promise of God, nothing in your pain is meaningless. It's all preparing, working for something, producing something, producing a weight of glory, a special glory for you. Just for you. Because of that pain. You might hear that verse and you might say, Stephen, but my, my affliction isn't light. To which the Apostle Paul, I think, would say, well, compared to what? Compared to the eternal weight of glory of what God is working in your life. He is doing something amazing. For one who has No sight to be able to regain your sight, isn't sight so much more beautiful having lost it and then received it again? For the one who is able to walk and lost the ability to walk, isn't walking all that much more beautiful and glorious because they're now able to walk again? God is working something beautiful through your affliction. That is the promise, that is the hope of providence, that your pain has meaning. How do we apply this providence? I think we see this in the book of Ruth, how we are to apply it. But before we go there, let's go back to the second question of this in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 28, what advantage is it to us To know that God has created and by his providence does still hold up all things. And he then answers. That we may be patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. And that in all things which may hereafter befall us. We place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father. That nothing shall separate us from his love. Since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. How do we respond to adversity? Knowing the providence of God, trusting the providence of God, knowing that God is making something out of our pain shows us that we need to be patient in adversity. Adversity. This was Naomi's struggle. She kept telling herself, God is against me. God is against me. God has struck me down. God has taken away from me. God has brought me back empty. She was not patient in the adversity. She did not have the trust to see what God was doing. Whenever you are going through your adversity, what are you telling yourself? What are you preaching to yourself? Are you heaping condemnation on yourself, putting blame on yourself? Are you you putting blame on other people in other situations? Are you shaking your fist at God? Or are you looking to God, saying, God, I am going to trust you no matter what comes? It brings us patience in adversity. I was thinking of the psalmist in Psalm 42, verses 3 through 5. This is what the psalmist says. My tears have been my food day and night. While all day long people say to me, where is your God? They don't see the providence of God. The psalmist says, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. And then he preaches this to himself. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why, my soul, are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. While the rest of the world was looking at the psalmist saying, Where is your God? The psalmist says, I will praise him. For he is my Savior, he is my God, he will redeem all things. We need to make sure that we are preaching this truth to ourselves when we face adversity, when we face loss, when we face evil. But not only do we need to preach itself to ourselves, guys. I'm going to take this one next step further. Guys, we need to sing truth to ourselves. Like some of us might not like our own voices. I hear my voice on a recording. I think this is universal. You hear yourself on the recording. You're like, oh, that's not what I sound like. Some of us don't like the sound of our own voices. But man, there is something. Medicinal. There is something beautiful about singing truth to ourselves. That when we face trials, we need to sing truth that will reinforce it, what we know about God. Whenever Lindsay and I faced the loss of, of a baby at 34 weeks, uh, we had started this tradition where we name. We name it a child, but we also um, give it a child a hymn. So, my oldest daughter, Abby, her hymn is Great as I Faithfulness, and it's what we sang over her as she went to bed every night. Uh, we have uh, Leah, born during Christmas time, joy to the world. Um, a mighty Fortresses, our God, is for Nathaniel. But for, for Samuel Job, that we lost at 34 weeks, we picked the song, Be Still My Soul. Be still, my soul, says this. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and to provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend. Through thorny ways, lead to a joyful end. To sing songs that reinforce the fact that our God is good even through loss is medicinal. It heals our soul. It points us to our hope in God. To sit in that child's memorial service and to be able to lift up our voices and sing, Great is thy faithfulness even in loss, and be still, my soul, even in grief reminds us that what we are going through is not meaningless. We preach truth to ourselves, we sing truth to ourselves, and we have to remember that we we do not walk alone. Brother or sister in Christ, you do not walk alone through your grief. God has given you The gift of the church to walk alongside you, to encourage you, to lift you up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the church and he says, Comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. God has given you the church to walk with you. We must be patient. And adversity, but he also said that we need to be thankful in prosperity. One of the things that Naomi didn't see in the book of Ruth was all the blessings that God was sprinkling in her life along the way. She didn't see this pagan woman, Ruth, deny her God, turn from her family and covenant to die where she dies. She didn't see the blessing that Ruth took initiative to go and put herself in harm's way to collect food from the fields. Guys, she was a single foreign woman in a foreign land. If somebody was at risk in Israel of being taken advantage of, of being abu- abused, it would have been Naomi. We didn't, she didn't see... That it was not fate or chance that Ruth happened to the field of Boaz. A kinsman redeemer of Naomi's. It wasn't chance, it wasn't fate that she was in a place where Boaz was there. And allowed her not only to glean the fields, but heap kindness and protection upon her. Since God is in control, we can give thanks always in the storms of life we can give thanks but on calm seas we can also give thanks if you are going through a trial right now if you are suffering right now take time to pause and to give thanks to praise God for whatever you are currently going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a little bit further from the verse we just read about the church being there for one another, says this, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. Not give thanks when things are working out, not give thanks at Thanksgiving when it's obvious this is what we're supposed to do, but give thanks always. Let us create the habit of thanking God. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, it's like a wordsmith, once said this I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Whatever trial you are facing, whatever hardship or whatever uncertainty you are facing, if that hardship is throwing you up against the rock of ages, if all you, the, the only place you have to turn to is your hope in God, kiss that wave. Let it be a reason for thanks because it reminds you of the need and the dependence that you have on our God. And think of this. If you are still unconvinced that God can take grievous sin and make something beautiful beautiful out of it consider Christ Christ who knew no sin Christ who harmed no one falsely accused and hung on a cross to die despised and rejected no greater evil had ever been done But did God have a purpose and a plan through the death of Christ? And the answer is yes. We are the evidence and the fruit of that strong yes. That we are saved and we are redeemed through the evil acts that was placed on Christ. And God will continue to redeem the brokenness of the world and the evil in this world to make something beautiful out of it. So brothers and sisters in Christ, trust in God. Trust in God. Let's stand and pray.